All right, everybody, find your seats. Welcome back from uh, Christmas break. We didn't take a break, as you know, but uh, yeah, we're, we're jumping into this whole new year, new us, still the same us. Um, so just because we are getting off of New Year's, um, we thought that this would be a good time to talk about the Prohibition. Booze seems to run a plenty nowadays. Uh, back then, it ran so plentiful and at such odd times during the day that they finally had to take a look at it and be like, hey, this might be an issue. It, it's hard to fathom a time when enough support could have been drummed up to actually think for a moment that for 13 years, they couldn't manufacture, sell, or distribute alcohol within the United States. That's fucking crazy. Like, think of trying to present anything remotely close to that now. Yeah, it just, it seems insane. It seems otherworldly to think that that would be true. Um, And just like last year, uh, the man bringing up Solid, solid points to my right. Uh, New Year, same him, and I don't want him to change any other way. Uh, it used to be that the goose Just got him loose. Now the uh, the chronic gets him loose, and that is my co-host, Professor Chris. What's up? Happy New Year, everybody. Fucking saying goodbye to 2023 on to 2024, and in an full new year. Of historically high, hopefully a record-breaking year Yep, for historically high. And yeah, talking about Prohibition, I mean, the timing really checks out because Prohibition actually began, went into effect on January 17th, 1920. Now, it lasted all the way to December, I think, 5th of 33, mm-hmm. when it was finally essentially repealed with the passing of the 21st Amendment. And, I mean, how do you get to a point in a country where they're just like, fuck it, enough. Like, no more booze. This stuff's got to be real bad. Well, and I mean, the, you know, the, there might be a common misunderstanding <laughs> that of what it actually included as far as the, the amendment for prohibition. What it did was it outlawed production, import, slash export. I'm an importer-exporter. Vandalay Industries. Um, the transport and sale of intoxicating liquors, and it did not actually outlaw the consumption of alcohol, which, by the way, I was thinking about that earlier today. Remember when, like, in Westerns and stuff, they'd be like, she died of consumption. I never, like, I knew kind of maybe what that was, but I never just sat there and went, oh, yeah, that's just what happened when someone, they considered someone drank themselves to death. Yeah, I I guess... It would be like cirrhosis of the liver without actually doing yeah. a test on it. But consumption, that just sounds like, oh, god damn, the consumption got her. Yeah. So uh, that's what we're looking forward to. We are going to start consuming this episode along with you. We're not going to prohibit you from waiting any longer to hear about prohibition. I like it.
All right, so let's head back. Question one. Yes. Uh, prohibition isn't just for alcohol, right? Like, prohibition can be for anything. Yeah, because you can prohibit anything. But just whenever we say the word prohibition, this is the one thing that comes up. Like, if you yeah. Google prohibition, but if you, it's this. But if you also, because I was trying to find out the information relating to um, William Randolph Hearst, about prohibition, and when I put in Hearst and prohibition, it pulled up his marijuana prohibition. Oh. <laughs> so this one is just the longest standing. It's the one that everybody associates with it. And I think that it's got to be because of all the fucking craziness that happened during prohibition. The fucking mobsters, the gang wars, the fucking rum runners, the moonshiners, and all the shit that ends up popping out of prohibition during this 13-year stretch. It's fucking nuts. Yeah, I think that this kind of set our country down a path that nobody really expected us to. Um, luckily, we are doing the Prohibition podcast on Henny Friday, so I will be consuming... Is that a, is that a national holiday? Uh, yeah, I mean, Henny Friday is just really any Friday where you feel like it needs to be okay, a Henny, Henny Friday. Henny. Oh, I gotcha. Yeah, okay, Henny that Friday. Makes that makes sense. So, as we talk about the non-drinking... Now, see... You couldn't score something like that after January 17th, 1920, because you'd have to go into a liquor store and actually buy it. Unless but, you knew a guy. And, you know, this isn't something that just someone stood up in Congress and was like, let's get rid of alcohol. And everyone was like, oh, huzzah. There was a lot fucking leading up to this, like groundwork that was laid literally like a <laughs> hundred years even beforehand. Oh, did you just go straight from the bottle on that? That's what you get to do for Henny Friday. Okay. There's no there's no glasses involved for Henny Friday. So, you know, a lot of things can be chalked up as, you know, partial causes or contributed to the cause of prohibition. One of the biggest things was this thing called the temperance movement. And essentially the temperance movement was just like, in essence, to like temper yourself, correct? Yeah. As far I, as like abstain from anything harmful or that they considered immoral. And I think our country, even <clears throat> from, like, its founding, uh, I'm pretty sure when they came over on the ships, like... Uh, we talking, like, uh, 17... Pilgrims, like the Mayflower? Yeah, the Pilgrims. Okay, yeah. They just absolutely loaded the bows of their boat and the underside of their boat with booze. I don't know, because they remember did? you hear about, like, all of, like, the Quakers and everyone coming over that were essentially, like... What do they say off of Eurotrip? They were tired of all this hot and steamy sex and all that <laughs> stuff going on in Europe, all the corruption and the moral, you know, activities and behaviors. So, but at the same time, a lot of people that came over here were very religious and very anti that. So uh, I'm assuming that traveling, you maybe had a healthy mix of both because there's definitely a culture between sailors, the Navy, pirate, all that kind of shit. All of it has alcohol related to it. So it had to be been part of that culture as well. I think it's always been a part of the American culture. And the temperance movement didn't just start right before this. Um, there's a temperance movement that happened prior oh, to... I didn't know this. Temperance actually means the abstinence from alcoholic drink. Really? The, the yeah, I thought it was more of like... Temper everybody's... Just Im immoral behavior and stuff yeah. like that. But it's actually... The, oh, and then also it has another definition. The quality of moderation or self-restraint. Yeah, a whole multitude of men lack temperance in their lives, either from ignorance or from what want of self-control. Yeah. Okay, temperance so I guess awful. during Prohibition, temperance became so intertwined with alcohol that that's Changed even kind of a meaning of the word now. And, I mean, 
the Americans, there was an American Temperance Society formed in 1826. Yeah, pre-Civil War. Like, that's literally 1776, no, what would that be, 56 years? 51 years. After, no, 1776, so 50 years. After the founding of our country, and by 1835, it had 1.5 million members. How the fuck do you get 1.5 million members in 1835, like, how do you gather all of the fucking record-keeping and, like, that's crazy. It hadn't been at, big then. I think they were pretty good at keeping records back then. Also, I think uh, the temperance movement back then could have been, like, Catholics on uh, Midnight Mass and Easter Mass. Like, the, you you are in there in name, but I don't think you're living the temperance lifestyle to the realm. I mean, 1.5 million sounds like a shitload of people, right? And that's yeah. a great number to pass around. Mm-hmm. Not all 1.5 million people are living the temperance lifestyle. Well, this was actually the American Temperance Society. So you had to join this thing. Yeah, but it looks good. I mean, getting jobs back then, I'm um, sure. Honey, of course I wasn't out partying. I'm part of the American Temperance exactly. Society. Yeah, you get pulled over for being drunk in the street, yeah. and you just whip out your temperance card. Like, I, I couldn't him. be that drunk. Not him. No, Officer, I, I know temperance. how good I'd be drunk. <laughs> I'm part of the temperance movement. So it was like 30, I like this stat. It was 35 to 60% women. So you're like, so he was either less than half or more than half women. I'm I guess lean, it, at different times. Yeah, I'm going to lean more towards the 60% though. And one of the reasons that it was more heavily, you know, in this situation, we're going to assume more heavily woman-centric or with membership is because women were kind of the people dealing with the brunt of the problems the fucking alcohol was causing. Weren't a lot of wives getting drunk and beating their husbands. Well, and you would ask yourself if this movement was so large, why wouldn't this have been something that happened before? Uh, what's the key issue with having such a large temperance movement, but the majority of them being women? At this time? Yeah. They don't have the right to vote. Exactly. So even though they're fighting for this temperance movement, it's just kind of a dog and pony show because there's not enough voting Americans mm-hmm. in this country that could really make a difference. And I do think that this sort of moving into this timeline with prohibition, prohibition and the temperance movement, the temperance movement was sort of like a push for abolitionists to try to gain the rights to vote. Because I know that Susan B. Anthony started out her career in the temperance movement. Yes, I did hear that. So it is kind of one of those things where if everybody's going to get on board with this, they're going to need more men than women because women don't have a way to... Mm -hmm share their opinions. <laughs> Ladies, your husbands need to vote. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it goes through kind of self, several like iterations of this temperance movement or different parties coming in to kind of carry the torch of temperance or essentially like a crusade against alcohol. They called it the dry crusade. So in eight, the 1840s were basically like religious groups coming in to be against alcohol, like the Methodists and everything. And then it looks like back like in 18, they just kind of go back and forth. So like in 1870, the women's Christian temperance movement and prohibition party were formed. So you're starting to get like even more parties behind this. They may not all be behind, you know, the temperance society, but there's people like joining other groups and kind of creating other groups. I wonder what they thought of slavery. I wonder if they wanted to temperate slavery. I don't think they had a problem with that. Um, 1881, Kansas actually is the first state to outlaw alcohol. And there was the, did you hear about Carrie Nation? 
Uh, she was, was the, the one that, that would come run into around like, and yeah. Oh yeah. So she was basically a prohibition activist, and she would like go into basically saloons were still a big thing. Which thinking about it, when they're talking about New York and saloons, and then all these like rural places, that's what bars were before they were bars. I don't know what I expected. Saloons were what in like old west towns. Or where you went for, like, drinking and entertainment. So I have no idea why I was like, why do they keep fucking calling them saloons? Well, that's what they were first. Uh, that's what they were first. And it was actually saloons were without the wraparound bar mm-hmm. that would change it to being called a bar. Because there oh, was no shit. place to stand at to drink. Look at that. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. So. And mostly men inhabited these saloons. Oh, yeah. hundred <laughs> percent. So, uh, Carrie Nation took it upon herself. She started like assaulting these saloons around where she was. She would come in, start throwing rocks around, breaking bottles, yelling at customers. Broad Max. Yeah, get out of here. You shouldn't be drinking the devil's water, all that shit. And yeah, using a fucking hatchet. Just to break bottles. Just to break bottles and everything. I think she ended up getting arrested or charged like 30 times. But she never got... Uh, convicted of it because technically it was illegal in the state of Kansas. Yeah. So she just would be able to go in and wreck shop in these places. And then once they arrested her and brought her in, they're like, well, you were causing all this mayhem and vandalism. She's like, yeah, but you guys weren't enforcing the law. So I had to, I'm like, ah, shit, kind of got a point. (laughs) This is when two wrongs actually did make a right. Yeah. Yeah. Very much. So, you know, the the biggest thing with the temperance movement, and I don't want to just boil it down to say these are the only things, but this is kind of my takeaway. Essentially, they viewed alcohol, first of all, the domestic abuse mm-hmm. and all that went with that for both wives and then children having to watch and grow up with that, um, causing absenteeism for fathers. And then also basically just like challenging like the and tearing apart families. And, you know, in these religious groups and everything like that, they're going to be, you know, I'm not saying I'm not profile. I have a fucking family. Yeah. But it was definitely like about the children which uh, if it's to do with the domestic abuse of course i fucking get that the the whole reason this is also caused we were just talking about this is because apparently there came a time in our history when people just couldn't handle their shit and i get it from a standpoint of what was going on around that time because you know these saloons like in neighborhoods even they actually start popping up like and become popular post-civil war And you're like, well, gee, why would they? Well, first of all, that's when the country moves its way toward industrializing Mm -hmm. in these major cities. Also, you have all these fucking guys coming back from fighting the fucking Civil War with fucking PTSD. Like, PTSD didn't just happen when wars got to a certain... It wasn't like Desert Storm is the first time people are having PTSD because there was tanks or like all that kind of shit or these new types of weapons. It's just one of those things that's come to the forefront. So you still had, thinking about the Civil War, an entire generation of people that were just horribly scarred, mentally scarred. We just put a name to it. Yeah. Like, that's post-traumatic stress disorder just literally comes from decades upon decades of people coming back from war and having just tremendously bad things happen to them. In addition to, like, what it took to live back then. Uh Uh-huh. Like, you think we have fucking, like, think of all the comforts and at-ease things we have. Literally every day was just, like, could be your fucking last. I'm not saying it was, like, life on the frontier and all that kind of shit, but it was still one of those things where... 
Huh? I think it was worse than Life on the Frontier because Life on the Frontier, you just have to worry about something or an animal or something coming to kill like in you. Like the cities, you got to worry yeah. about every fucking one else. I, with a city, you got to worry about everybody else. But you could just be walking down the street and some window washers up above you weren't tied in, and one of them could drop something, and it could just be your last day. The classic somebody, moving a piano up to the uh-huh, third floor and yeah. you walk underneath it. Yeah. There were just no rules. There were no regulations for anything, and going into factories or anything like that. I'm sure that going into factories, like it probably wasn't a 50, 50 chance that you were going to die that day, but there was like, there was a, OSHA ain't looking, they're not touring these places. Yeah. You have this industry, which is relatively new. So you have these machines that maybe people haven't really worked around that Uh much. They're like, we didn't know that coal smoke was fucking bad for people. What the fuck? We thought it was just people going into the mines, getting the black lung, but apparently it still hurts after you burn it. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. So you get these saloons popping up in these industrialized areas. You have a lot more people in these urban centers when the population's growing from the country. And also, where's the first place that when people are immigrating into the United States, where's the first place that they're stopping or that they know someone or a collection of those people? They're going to a bar near Ellis Island because that's where all the other immigrants are coming in. Big cities. Oh yeah, but that's that even shows you how much that was ingrained in our society is that there was a bar. On Ellis Island, mm-hmm. where they first had to go to essentially be what what would you call that process through process immigration? Through immigration. Uh, the other big issue with saloons, what was their second purpose? There's a, is it like the meeting place? No, their second purpose was they actually functioned as quasi banks where you could take your paycheck in and they would cash out your paycheck at the saloon. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, so you could go in, take your paycheck from the job you just worked that might be two or three blocks away. You set your paycheck down, they cash you out because they know that if they cash your paycheck... Why are you here? Why do you have a beer? Exactly. That's actually a genius idea. It's very smart, but again, it's just like the praying nature of society to get these people to drink. The other thing about it, too, is they would actually give you like free glasses of booze, like free glasses of whiskey mm-hmm. with your lunch. No, no, it was the other way around. If you bought the lunch, you got the drink. Or yeah, what? That's what I mean. Yeah. yeah. So you buy lunch and they're like, hey, oh, no, no, that you're right. lunch. It was a free meal with it. Yeah. It was a no, free meal with a drink purchase. You bought the meal and they give you the free booze. Okay. And they would purposely use like salty foods uh-huh. or over salt foods because it would make you thirstier and have to drink more. Like it's it, like that much thought like went into this. This was John Taffer science before John uh, you Taffer. You got to wonder if this is where like potato chips came from and all that kind of shit. So... Again, we got industry like fueling this and everything. You have this influx of people from, you know, other countries. And so part of this temperance movement is basically saying, well, you know, these saloons are opening up and they're basically drawing husbands right after work in for drinking. And then they come home and, you know, abusive to their wives and kids. Also, you have this culture of these immigrants coming in with their bringing in their horrible habits and drinking and all that kind of stuff that's actually like corrupting our society. So, I mean, they're just grabbing at really anything they can. I I find this to be the best part of it because we're talking about early 1900s. They're people that they're related to. You only have to go back to probably like great grandfathers, maybe. They've they've met people that are not from that immigrated to this country. Yeah, Chance, well, yeah. Their family had just recently within That's the last. That's what I meant. Like 100... they they've known family members, like <laughs> yes. their grandpa. Yeah. So for them to be like, oh, these foreigners are bringing in their dirty values. That's when and you get like nationalism and everything. Yeah, dude, it's so was, bad. Was the xenophobia nation- was crazy. There's a term for it. And I can't remember what it is. It's that 
oh my God, why can't I think of this? It's that essentially it's like nationalism, but a belief that it was like the reason that the country was doing so well is because like the white people came in. Yeah. I can't remember. I fucking read the term. And I can't remember. White nationalism. It, <laughs> it, it was a form of nationalism, I guess. But and the other thing with about a saloon, eh, saloon, saloons too, is that you know you have all of these people coming in from the factories. You also had these guys, you know, joining after the workday, talking about the stresses. You know, bosses, a pain in my ass, or like yep. you know, a danger. Like John got his hand crushed by something today, and. These industries looked at these saloons as a place where people could possibly unionize, start forming unions, possibly strike, do that kind of stuff. So you did have kind of outside factors that once you see how quickly once prohibition is pushed through, how much support it has, it's like, what the fuck? Like, how did it gather this much support? There was a lot of other shady shit behind it that kind Mm -hmm. of forced it through. Under the guise of just basically taking alcohol away from a certain portion of people is what it really seemed. And not to say that these saloons were all great places. Um, This is where personal responsibility sort of starts to rear its ugly head for these people because... There, would there be, is blame here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They they would be going into these bars at lunch, and they would have two glasses of whiskey, or they would have four or five beers, and then they'd go back into these factories, and they'd start running this heavy machinery mm-hmm. again. And one of the guys that we probably won't mention too much, uh, shit. Oh, yeah. His last name is Wheeler. Um, he rises to power in this place, or in this organization called the Anti-Saloon League. Uh, I guess as a boy, he was working out on his farm, and one of the farm hands had gotten drunk before mm-hmm. he went out to help him bale hay and ended up getting impaled by a pitchfork because the dude was too drunk and not paying attention and accidentally stabbed him. So there were. That p- might do it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there were plenty. You're going to of- have a vendetta against pitchforks and then probably the alcohol. Exactly. Yeah. You, you- blame, blame the alcohol and the pitchfork, not the guy. Yeah. It's not the guy <laughs> that was responsible for it. But yeah, I mean, you definitely have these, and I'm not saying these incidents were isolated. I'm just saying there were some a few bad apples ruined in the bushel for everybody. Yeah. Oh yeah. Another thing that they saw too was they would notice because there was gatherings at these saloons that like local politicians could come in and speak to these people who were, you know, if they were immigrants and stuff like that. Those are voters. So you would have these people using basically these saloons as like places to secure votes. And what better? time to do that than when they're all liquored up and just waiting to hear some guy speak clearly enough that all of them understand it. Yeah. They actually had the temperance movement. Um, when people would leave Ellis Island, when they went through their citizenship and everything like that, and mm-hmm. they were being taken off. There were people that would stand outside and hand out flyers for the temperance movement to newly Americanized people. Mm-hmm. And they would be in their native languages. Oh, yeah. They would have a whole stack. And they would just say, like, Deutsch, like if you're German. Uh-huh. And then the person wouldn't respond. And then they would say another nationality or in, in that nationality's, you know, language. And then finally they would get to yours and you'd be like, oh, okay, yeah. you're. Are you going to help me with something? And they would hand you this. And it was like, don't drink. Yeah. So instead of, like, they come over to this country. And I don't think there's Has quite the as much. pissing in new glass. Is this what you want? <laughs> like. I don't think there was as much um, wonderment as far as people coming to America. Like you always hear when they're like, oh, yeah, this is the, the Statue of Liberty. Uh-huh, this yeah. is the greatest nation in the world. Land we can do what we want. 
there were enough people in the country that had emigrated enough by now that I think they were probably sending enough letters home that people knew that it was the land of opportunity, but they kind of knew what they were signing up for. That's what also I think why they came into these cities is because you had places that would form, you know, you look at New York today of all like the different district or like, you know, the different places, the neighborhoods and the boroughs. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And so you would move somewhere and then automatically you might not know, you know, know people individually there and have family, but you can move into a neighborhood that essentially had all people like you. They Mm -hmm. spoke the same language. So you would at least have some level of like comfort in assimilating into kind of like American culture. Also, did you have any idea, so the 16th Amendment, that replaced the alcohol tax with income tax. Did you know that? There used to be able to tax so much on on alcohol that that's what the government primarily, like, funded off of. Well, they, prior to this prohibition movement, uh, there were multiple tries at uh, prohibiting people from drinking alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, the first one was a tax that the United States had put on booze to try to bolster some more money. Yeah. And, and maybe that try led, to kind of stem the flow a little yeah, bit. That led to a little something called the whiskey rebellion that Ooh. we're going to end up doing an episode on eventually. Uh, basically anytime they tried to push anything through that would prohibit people from buying alcohol or even heavily taxing it, the people weren't too pumped about it. No. So they needed a way to uh, start prohibition that everybody was kind of ready to go. It's like they were planting, they were just like quietly working behind the scenes to ensure that when it did go into effect, because I mean, if you're a politician, you kind of see the writing on the wall, you have lobbyists and stuff like that that are telling you which way the winds are blowing Uh and everything. If you get a sense, you know, during the next couple of election cycles, man, I'm going to need to have this temperance movement behind me. You're already trying to kind of set the groundwork because you can't go straight from, if they try to just enact prohibition, everyone's going to be like, what are you, what are you guys going to do for money? And they're like, oh, by by the way, there's also we're going to start charging you guys on your income. That's what's going to fuel the government now. It's not going to be the alcohol sales. You guys can keep buying that for now. Well, I mean, not we're going to tax it at yeah, a much f- smaller rate. It still yeah. will be taxed, but it's not going to be our but major. But now, source when of prohibition income. does happen, the government's already taken care of. They're getting yeah. funded elsewhere, and now it's not another shock of saying like, oh, by the way. You're losing this, and we're going to start. You can't do that at the same time and get it passed. So we're going to take away your booze, and we're going to like be taking more of your money. And they, as far as the uh, Women's Christian Temperance Union and the Anti-Saloon League, they had lobbyists that would be in these local elections that would be having these um, candidates' ears and say, well, if you want to follow our cause, we will make sure that whoever is in the temperance movement will follow and vote for you. Oh, yeah. If not... This is how many votes we control. This is how many votes, yeah. essentially, your support is getting or your agreement is getting you. So slowly over time, we start to see Congress morph into more of a prohibition-friendly group of people because they see the power that the temperance movement and this anti-saloon league had in the grassroots. Then, World War One comes along. Now you got World War One, and the outbreak basically turns... Any type of, like, any country that is fighting against, like, the Allies that has a presence in the United States, their industries are just, like, shunned. Yep. Shot it, it pretty tur- Yeah, it completely turns public opinion against them. Well, 
Who were most of the breweries owned by? Germans. The Germans. The Germans. And so you basically had this anti-German sentiment that right from the get-go, World War I, they're like, well, no, we're not going to be drinking your beer, all that kind of shit. Also, you got to feed the troops. So what they did was there was wheat and barley. It was barley rationing, right? Uh, I believe it was just all grain. Whatever, yes, whatever they were using to make the beer. Yeah. It was essentially being rationed and being redirected to the the war effort at that point. So all these things are happening to where it's actually even like, it's like a prohibition warm-up. Like they're weaning them off. It's like the foreplay before before they're about to get fucked and and have their alcohol taken away. And what that also did is part of what was kind of keeping the temperance movement at bay, at least in kind of counter protest was that these German breweries, because they were large operations, they used to have power and lobbying power and everything. Well, guess what's going to happen if those, you know, people in Congress find out that they're getting money from the German breweries, that's going to turn, they're not getting elected again. So essentially that completely took away all of their protesting power. They just didn't really have that. I will give it to the temperance movement, uh, the anti-saloon league. Pretty smart way to go oh, yeah. about trying to get something they, done. They knew who to pick as their targets. Uh-huh. I'm not, it was very strategically. Embar- they just had some stuff happen as well that almost sped it up for them. And that got more people kind of behind them. A few things just broke right for them. And as soon as those things broke right, they could start to enact their... Well, and as soon as World War One started, it didn't take long. So the 18th Amendment was actually proposed by Congress on December 18th of 1917. Of course, the wheels of government turn slowly. Always. So it was ratified on January 6th, 1919, and it actually went into effect one year later on January 17th, 1920. So after it was ratified, they basically made the announcement, now hear this, now hear this. Um, so in one year's time you will no longer be able to buy alcohol. And we're giving you, hey, we're giving you a year, though. So get your fucking party in, start stocking up. We're, it's not going to be criminalized to actually consume alcohol if you keep a store, but you're not going to be able to get any once prohibition starts. It wasn't saying, like, you can keep drinking it if you can keep finding it. People were allowed to build up as much of a stock as they did. And everybody who had the means to do so built, like, bought up a shit ton. Because they didn't know how long they were going to have to float themselves till. Well, and kind of the tough part about all this, uh, for people that don't understand how our government and constitution works, uh, the ratification process means, in essence, that two-thirds of the state congresses have to vote for the amendment mm-hmm. to go onto the constitution. So you have to get two thirds of at the time, 48 States to say, yes, we want to do this. So it's going to take a little bit of time. There were 48 States at that point. Yep. Cause Hawaii and Alaska weren't in okay. yet. Um, so at that point it, the wheels were moving slowly because you were getting all these two thirds of the country to sign off on it. Um, in the meantime, one of the things that they had passed before this was um, just a full-on effort for World War I. Mm-hmm. And so they passed this, um, oh, what the fuck was it? It was uh, an act. Yeah, it was just basically like a wartime act to where all grain was going to be redistributed to the war. I already said that. Uh, no, you were talking about rationing. 
Oh, okay. this was like a full blown. Oh, everything. they it from rationing to where they were like, now you're not getting any grain. Yeah, like we're okay. not doing booze because all of that was just going straight directly towards the war. Uh, they signed that on shit. What was it? Um, November. Yeah, it was called the Wartime Prohibition Act. They'd signed that November 18th, 1918 to start to send all the grain towards the war. The armistice for World War One was signed November 21st, 1918. So literally three days before the armistice was signed for World War One, they enacted this. They did this at the end of the war. Yeah. So essentially it was like. The- so wait, and you know that like it wasn't just like, what what, what do you call the other side of World War One? I? I should know this. Losers? No, but it wasn't like the Axis. It was like the Ottomans, right? Ottoman mm. Empire. Yeah, that the was. Germanic. Yeah. yeah, so basically it wasn't just like they just put their hands on like, hey, we give up. This was a long like, long thing coming. We definitely knew. I completely forgot the fact that that happened just a couple days before the armistice was signed. And like I said, it's they're, they're putting all the pieces into place. Well, in this wartime Prohibition Act doesn't have a solid end date on it. So even though they did it beforehand, they could then stretch it further out, which then led into December 18th, 1917, was when they had first said, hey, this 18th Amendment's going to pass, or when they were going to pass it. So before it could be ratified, they had, in essence, already started prohibition before the ratification had happened. They stopped almost like the means of manufacture. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. They they were going to cut it off and not allow it a chance to recover. And a big part of this... um, No, we can leave it up for a little bit. A big part of this, for this whole year's idea, was wine and whiskey both need time to age. Mm Mm-hmm. So you have all these whiskey distilleries, you have all these winemakers that need time to sell off the product that they already have. And if they do sell off the product, it's not going to be technically maybe what they, it could just be brand new. Yeah, and they're they're literally going to be selling it for cents on the dollar, but it's enough money to try to keep these breweries afloat depending on how long Prohibition goes for. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were some whiskey distilleries that were just like, fuck you. I don't know how long this is going to go. We're just going to... We're going to let them age. Yeah. <laughs> let them age. The aging continues. <laughs> we're just going to have like 25-year-old... So you have like a 15-year. Uh-huh. And then all of a sudden, it's 13 years more. Can you imagine being like, this is the Prohibition Edition? Yeah. That sounds so fucking cool. You're going to be selling that for a lot of money. Unfortunately, when Prohibition's lifted, a lot of money isn't around. Mm-hmm. But... Excuse me, I'm sure there's still bottles that went through Prohibition today that hit the auction block that are going for like hundreds there of thousands of dollars. There have got to be held by distillers, like large distillers that lasted and everything. Yeah. 100% that like the, the owners are like, nope, I have five barrels that I was able to uh-huh. keep and I drink them in very special occasions. They're supposed to last me and my family the next fucking 50 generations. We have eight bottles left and we have to make eight bottles ration. Yeah. But the other side of it was exactly like you were talking about. The rules that were put forth were put forth in a thing called the Volstead Act. And basically Volstead was just the guy that wrote it. But it legally defined what intoxicating liquors were and then the penalties for production and sales. So this was kind of like, this was the blueprint for how prohibition was going to go. And when I say that, I say the penalties for production and for sales. Just like you said earlier, 
there was no penalty for actively drinking your own liquor or being drunk at home. Yeah, you could drink it at home. You couldn't like go and take like flasks with you and uh-huh. stuff like that. But you could drink it within your home if it was being used for personal use. And then also like you could have like cocktail and dinner parties uh-huh. and everything, which that almost like their same prohibition almost gave rise to like the modern dinner party and cocktail party and everything. Because that was the only place you could gather instead of meeting up at the bar or the saloon, you now had to meet at somebody's house and then you meet at the next person's house. While all this is going on, um, I know that Harding was second. Who was the first? It's the alliteration. WW? Woodrow Wilson? Yes. Yeah, so Woodrow Wilson is the president at this time and he knows that this is coming. He also uh, vetoed the 18th Amendment. Mm-hmm. But they went through and overrode his veto yep. to send it to ratification. He was very against this. He took that year's time to just basically pack the White House with as much booze as he could fit oh, yeah. in, into the basement. Oh, yeah. And when the time came and he didn't get reelected and he had to swap out with Harding, mm-hmm. you could actually buy a special permit to be able to... Transport it from, like, one location to another. Uh-huh. Yeah. So Harding got one to transport his liquor that he had saved up into the White House, and Wilson bought one so he could transport his liquor from the White House to his residence. Yeah. So just all in all, this whole ban on liquor is the, only... The, in, the incoming president would then brought his... Yeah, in. Harding did, yeah. Yeah. They so... Had- it wasn't necessarily no drinking. It was just you had to be smarter than the law. Here's the thing, too, is if you're in Congress and everything like that, you obviously have a ton of connections. Even if you drink, this probably isn't much of a threat to you Uh -uh. because you know that through your channels and everything, you're still – and you're going to have an opportunity to gather up these resources. You have more means. And the main people that this affected and hurt was just common people. And that's that's really all this was, was just an attack on the lower middle class. Yeah, Because if you were – a rich person or you were a head of state, anything like that, you're going to be traveling abroad. What stops you from throwing a couple bottles of French wine in your bag or come on? (laughs) Well, I just, the thought of like everybody else is trying to figure out your means provide you the ability to just procure whatever you want. You don't have to think about where your next drink is coming from. Like everybody else would, because you are constantly in contact with being able to buy it. So prohibition goes into effect, and immediately there's this pushback. Oh, January seventeenth, twenty, or oh shit, nineteen twenty. Yes. Yeah. Okay. January seventeenth. So I'm sure January sixteenth was probably pretty raucous. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, imagine like it being the last the last year. So like New Year's of nineteen nineteen had to be fucking insane. Mm-hmm. Like get your kicks in while you can. And then leading up to that, it was probably a mad scramble for sixteen days for all the people that didn't realize what was going on or didn't think about it and were, were trying to race around gathering up all the booze or means of then possibly making their own. Because again, if you know this is coming a year down the road, people that are really worried about it are willing to do something about it are probably looking for other means in which to continue doing this. They're not just like, oh, I'm going to stop. Well, and yeah, another loophole in the Volstead Act was you couldn't purchase it, but you could also brew your own beer. You could brew your own uh, wine the at con- home. Well, it wasn't beer. The condition was... Cider? Yes, it had to be fruit-based. Oh, that's right. So you could brew your own wine and cider, and we'll talk about it here in a little bit, but companies were like, we, we can help with that the without blow, intentionally yeah. helping with that. 
immediate pushback when this thing goes into effect is you get the the you know a ton of medical professionals are like whoa 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 we prescribe a lot of whiskey that's like one of our main things i mean it treats everything it treats depression it treats you know they said cancer like they would prescribe it almost as like a painkiller like an anesthetic i would imagine and you know being a, a regular drinker myself I could understand where the police were com- or where the doctors were coming from from that. Um, I also, I think we didn't quite get it. Do you, I'm not sure if you have the full right number, but on average at the time, uh, Americans were consuming what was it, 88 liters yes. of whiskey a year? Yeah. So it was actually, let's see. So the average adult drank about 2.5 gallons of pure alcohol per year. That equates, and when I say pure alcohol, basically the equivalent of how much alcohol thirteen percent, eighteen percent of the drinks, it. the units, or whatever. So, yeah. like whatever, however you distributed that out to different types of drinks, that's still a ton of pure alcohol. So, what that equated to was thirteen drinks a week. <laughs> Which I'm sure, when the doctors knew that prohibition was coming, they're like, "Whoa, these people can't all go cold turkey. These people are regular alcoholics." Well, one of the things too is because medical liquor was a a real thing. Yeah. You had 11 million alcohol prescriptions. So, sorry, jumping back just a little bit. Within six months of prohibition going into effect, 15,000 doctors and 57,000 pharmacists received licenses to distribute medical liquor. And per year through the 20s, there were 11 million alcohol (laughs) prescriptions written. So, like... I the only thing I can even think that this would be kind of equated to is when they first started doing like medical marijuana. Yeah. And you wanted to get your card and you would go in and be like, "Oh, man, I get nervous in crowds." And be like, "You know what you need? You need some nice kind bud. Here's a here's your card." I think my cat's angry at me. One dog card wrote 475 liquor prescriptions in one day. So that guy was like, and you know, there were I think was it the American Prohibition? Who was like in charge of it to enforce it? Uh, it was just the government. No, it, but there it, was like a prohibition something force or like someone that was in charge, enforcement agency, some shit like that. But they had like 1,500 employees or 1,500 <laughs> officers that were meant to actually like enforce prohibition. And so, you know, it's going to draw some attention if one doctor is filling out 475 of these in one day. That's the thing, though, is you had 1,520 agents that were tasked with enforcing this ban nationwide. Yeah. You know, no one oh, wants that fucking job. No, but do you know how hard it would be for 1,500? If we had 1,500 policemen in this country, you know how lawless this place would oh, be? yeah. <laughs> it just wouldn't matter. Well, and I don't know how they calculate this, but between 1921 and 1930... $40 million was made for wh- from whiskey prescriptions. I'm sure that wouldn't be too tough to to figure out the math on. Yeah. Uh, also, after this happened, or after the 18th Amendment went in, I feel like this, I just had to write this quote down because it just is so fucking funny. Uh, Senator Morris Shepard said, there's as much of a chance of repealing the 18th Amendment as a hummingbird fly to Mars with the Washington Monument tied to its leg. Like, how confident are you to say that shit and then knowing what we know now? Cocky motherfucker. (laughs) Like, you really thought that we weren't going to be able to do this? You thought that this was just going to be impossible to repeal? And then 13 years later? It had never been done before. 
that's the whole point. There was no precedent for it. Just like even though we have precedent for something being repealed, yeah. there's still so much pushback in any even discussing the possibility of like altering the sacred text or any of that shit. Um, well, of course, if, you know, America is unable to produce this or, you know, export it or import it or anything like that, someone's got to pick up the slack. So Canadian, Mexican, and Caribbean manufacturing sales, imagine that. They fucking soar through the roof because there are closest neighbors who still have this kind of stuff. You had places like Tijuana. Tijuana wasn't a thing before Prohibition. No, and it just the population just blew up as soon as it happened, right? Yep. And so you had what these... TJ's probably twenty ish, thirty ish minutes from San Diego. I think it's even close. It's right across the border, dude. Yeah, but still, drive time getting across oh, from San Diego. Like, yeah. Oh, I'm not sure. Close it's... enough that a donkey show can whatever the distance to donkey <laughs> show ratio for wanting to travel to see something like that is. Um. So yeah, and. I, so you had that on the West Coast. There were other ways, you know, it was coming in through Canada. If you've ever seen the Canadian border, it it's maybe has a toll booth on the road or like, you know, now it's a little bit more secure. In There's, some places. There are so many places where you could just, like it was planes in certain areas where you could just like carry this shit across or like transport it across. So there was shit coming in from Canada. Unfortunately, too, I believe um, the United States and Canada share the longest land border of any two countries. So... Mm. It, there's so much opportunity to go that way that you have forests that are literally just like there's a sign or a stake up that says entering Canada or leaving Canada, entering why, America. I think it's why Chicago was such a hotbed during Prohibition for like gangland or like mobsters and stuff like that with Al Capone being there. That because just it, like Chapo used Chicago as a literal yeah, hub to send shit east It's close and west. to everything, but it's also close enough to Canada to act as yeah. a distribution hub. So it's kind of there to, to be able to spread that all out. Um, it was coming up from the Bahamas and everything. So the Bahamas at this point were like a British territory or colony and everything. So they got on the, I can't remember who it was. I don't know if it was, was Wheeler a senator? No, Wheeler no, no, he was, was just the a, Yeah, he was just with the, whatever. Um, you had a guy from Congress that was, you know, with the temperance movement or kind of supporter of that, basically call up Britain and is like, hey, can you guys do something about, like, all this alcohol and shit that's coming from Nass- Nassau and, like, the Bahamas and everything? And they're like, nah, we're, nope, we're not going to do anything about it. And you'll like this. So uh, good old Winnie, Winnie Churchill basically said that prohibition was an affront to the whole history of mankind. <laughs> it was an abomination. It was an abomination. Of God. So much so that like the true boss this guy was, if you haven't listened to our Winston Churchill episode, go back and hit Great that. And you'll find out what we're talking about. Churchill had a doctor's note. So when he came into the country, he was allowed medical <laughs> uh, liquor and he could continue drinking, which that makes sense because if anybody is going to go through withdrawals, and it's that Winston possibly asshole, affects yeah. someone majorly, it would be Winston Churchill. Well, the shitty thing was the government started to catch on to this whole medical liquor game because they had actually reduced the amount that you could get for a prescription. So I think before it was like you could get um, a quart of liquor or something like that per week. They had actually cut it down to where medical liquor that you could buy was only a half a pint a week. 
So, like enough to where the medicine would probably still be properly you just used gotta as save medicine. It for one night. You got to save that for one. You can't be spread yeah, that no. out over the course of the week. You're just like, listen, I can either have little sips throughout the whole week, or I can just wait for Friday night and just pound this whole thing. I, I can waste this and just kind of. Can you imagine all of you and your buddies are just sitting in your fucking like basement, and you all just have your half pint of medical liqueur, and you're just like one, two, three, go, and all of you just slam it, and then. Yeah, then five minutes later, last. you're sitting there staring at each other like, oh, mm-hmm. what do we do now? We would usually keep drinking, but fortunately, um, through all this time and all this space, you have booze coming from the south, booze coming from the north, booze coming from the Caribbean, and the juice is worth the squeeze for a lot of people because speakeasies became a thing very, very quickly. They said at one point, um, there were, I think they said 30,000 speakeasies just in 32. the city, of, in, just in the city of New York, thousand speakeasies in New York city. Now speakeasy is not always, it does not always mean like the one that you've seen on TV where it's like a larger bar and mm-hmm. you, know, you got the flappers and the jazz band, jazz juice flow and everything. <laughs> they weren't always huge like that. It could be literally a place with like a couple tables where they were serving alcohol. And they called them speakeasies because when you were talking about them because of prohibition, you were supposed to speak easy about yeah. it. This um, was also like a major cultural moment for the United States. Oh, yeah. Because not only did you have the transition from saloons to speakeasies where it was just primarily men that were drinking in saloons, you had women going to speakeasies. You had black people that were hanging out with white people. That's where white people figured out how fucking cool jazz was because the black people were like, hey, we got the jukebox for tonight. And the white people were like, Ugh, like we'll give it a shot. Speakeasies were the birth of almost like nightclubs. Yep. Like you had this, like you were saying, you had this equality coming together within drinking because like the women were like, this fucking sucks too. <laughs> like we like to drink at home and now we can't do that shit either. So they would come out, like you said, they would listen to music, kind of intermingle and everything like that. And it really kind of, you had almost this, in this generation too, you had this, I don't want to say like modern woman because that sounds corny, but you almost had this new way of thinking for women that they could like go out and, you know, I'm not saying like, I'm, I'm going to go out and be loose, daddy, and everything, all that kind of shit. But you had women that were more open-minded and more independent. This was also a generation of women who, when all the men were away during World War One, they were doing all the shit back home. They held shit down. So they when kept you got back, running. it wasn't just like, no, no, no. We're not just going to go back to this shit. We were holding this shit down and doing everything while you guys were gone. We're going to go and try to make this a little bit you know, more fair. Still can't vote. We'd like to get there someday. We're we're still working on that, but in this house. <laughs> well, and just the word that you had used before, flapper was like a derogatory term mm-hmm. for women before the 1920s. Then these women went out to these clubs, and they're like, you know what? If you're going to call me a flapper, I'm going to show you some shit. And they would go out, they would party, they would dance, they would wear all the old Gatsby regalia mm-hmm. that you see, you know, from today's time, and they would go out and cut a rug. They would have fun. You're asking, like, you hear the term the Roaring Twenties, and you see all of these, like, you dancing and all that kind of stuff. You think they're doing that shit fucking sober? Like, Prohibition was in effect during the Roaring (laughs) Twenties, if you think about that. So think of all the stuff you have in your head about the Twenties with dancing and music and all that kind of shit, and then be like, no fucking way those people weren't drinking. Yeah, and just the fact that the most sober time in this country is when the Roaring Twenties happened. Yeah. It's just such a juxtaposition and looking at it and like, those guys were having a great time. But alcohol was illegal? What's what's happening there? 
Well, in order to supply these speakeasies, which were ultimately, they were being run by either people that had um, saloons before or the mob. And as these places were being shut down, they were opening up like two days later in a vacant three doors down. Yeah, it was just immediately these things were happening. There was so much money to be made from black market like liquor and everything that it was, especially when the people that are in charge aren't taking the risk and are keeping themselves so separate from it that you can't even time to them. When we do the Al Capone episode, that's so fucking crazy. Yeah. All that stuff and how, how distanced from it he was, but how he was in charge of everything in Chicago. It's just that money, baby. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you can keep yourself three three degrees of separation from who ultimately is the one taking the bribe from you, it's impossible to be able to touch. Per year, it was a $3 billion a year industry. And that was Black back market then? alcohol sales. So not even today's money. Not even today's $3 money. Billion back then. That's how big it was. Which, uh, ultimately, somebody needs to be able to be making the money on the uh, top end of bringing the booze in, and that's where somebody I would like to call a personal friend if I was alive back then. Uh, American Sea Captain Bill McCoy. I see this guy as wearing, like, a captain's hat and, like, a Hawaiian shirt. Yeah. Unbuttoned. Completely he was listening way. to Margaritaville before yep, that some was white, a white thing. shorts and everything, and, like, a pipe. Hanging out of his hanging out of his mouth while he was like just steering this boat. Like him and Hemingway could have been cousins. Yes, like Hemingway <laughs> would have known this guy. Yeah, I'm sure they did. Uh, Bill McCoy was known as a rum runner, and a rum runner had a very very interesting life. They would basically travel up and down the eastern seaboard, and they kind of got what was weird is the term. Sorry to interrupt you. No, I realize I do that a lot. Do I interrupt you a lot? No, I, okay. it's always good. Rum runner was something that it seemed like they referred to as anyone who was transporting alcohol by boat because they talked about the rum runners of like Lake Michigan, yeah, and everything. And I don't think it was. I'm not like generalizing of where the alcohol is coming from, but it makes sense for rum to come from the Caribbean. Uh-huh. It makes sense for whiskey to come from Canada. And that's then, completely wrong, though. I know, I know it is. But what I'm and saying that's is what that, was so surprising when we were doing or when I was doing research for this. But that's what I'm saying. I think Rum Runner was also not just them coming up and transporting just rum from yeah. like the care. But I think it was just like it sounds like it was these fucking seagoing guys. Well, and like we'll talk about bathtub gin. That wasn't always gin. It was just kind of like the general consensus on what was coming in. Uh, so Bill got himself a start. Uh, he bought himself a schooner that he called the Athrusia or Athrusa. Uh, I can't pronounce it. It's a Arethusa. Arethusa could be. Um, and he would travel down to the Bahamas where he would pick up whiskey. Weirdly enough, whiskey was what he was getting from the Bahamas. Then he would travel up the Eastern seaboard, stopping in at these port towns and dropping off a case here, a case there. So he's stopping in at all these cities where there's going to be a lot of people. He's still kind of small time, yeah, but he's, he's, he's busy, but the demand's going to be high. Um, eventually he just started absolutely just killing it. He bought like a fleet of vessels. Yep. I think he had five at one time and they were moving it. Uh, it got so big that the operation ended up having to be out in international waters. Rum row, baby. (laughs) Rum row. Yeah. Rum row. Dude, rum row sounds so cool. So rum row, the way it was described. So at the three mile mark, and yeah. then what was the, was the next one? There was a five mile mark too, but th- three miles is where international waters like pretty much you could do what you wanted. Yeah, it was. So parked three miles out is where all of this booze that was also coming in from Europe 
And of course, this didn't happen probably not in like broad daylight and shit like that. But these boats would come in, stay in international waters, and then these smaller boats would go out and offload all this stuff and bring it in. What you also had is basically this is where they think booze cruises came from, is you would have people that had means and wanted to party and all that kind of stuff. There would be boats like ships three miles out that would ferry these people out and they would be able to party on these boats out in international waters and drink, and then they'd get ferried back in. One of his greatest inventions, and I can't explain how smart I feel like this was, was called a burlock. Dude. Did you read about the burlock? This thing is, this is like some old, like, semen Yeah, like, you got to have an understanding of of how it would go. So it would usually be, like, six bottles that would be wrapped very, very tightly in burlap. Inside the burlap sack that it was in would also be hay and salt. Now, you're thinking to yourself... I'm guessing, like, big rock salt. Yeah, Yeah. why in the world would that be important? I don't know. Well, when these... uh, When the Coast Guard or whoever... I think it was the Coast Guard that was coming out to check him when they were out on Rum Row... Well, basically, not just on Rum Row. Like, he was being actively, like, hunted by the Coast Guard and everything. Um, He's a booze pirate. Yeah, they know he's a fucking... (laughs) He's essentially... Yeah, he's, he's committing, like... Crimes on the open sea, which I guess would maybe classify him as a pirate. Um, but, I mean, they knew who he was. They, yeah. they were coming in to get him. But, yes, this is this is just a strategy that if he ever gets caught by someone, what do you do? You just dump all your, your stash overboard? No, because you're not getting it back. So these burlock sacks, I guess you call them burlocks. They, it's burlap sacks. But they were called burlocks. They were called burlocks, but it was made of burlap. Yeah. Yeah. So you would drop them overboard, and the weight of the rock salt or the whatever salt that was in there would sink this thing all the way to the ocean floor. You're not getting it back, right? Well, over time... Hey, you're going to get away, though, because they're not going to find booze on your boat. Yeah, so you're good. Uh, Over time, as the salt dissolves underwater and the sack got lightened up, these burlocks would then float to the top because of the little bits of air that were still Mm -hmm. in the bottles... The buoyancy of that would just rise that shit straight up. So I don't know if he had like it timed to whatever he had weight. To have. There had to. I imagine there was some type of system where he tested this, and he's like, "Okay." And they literally, minutes. yeah, when they were down in the Caribbean or down in the Bahamas and everything, he was probably like, "Okay, we're gonna do this. Just sit out here for, uh, and then we're gonna come back." They knew where the, it was gonna be, and they just found out what the time frame was. They're like, "We know that in sixteen hours, we're gonna send Jerry back out here." <laughs> In the other boat, and he's just going to go around and scoop up all these things that are floating. Could you imagine getting caught in, like, too warm of water and dropping them off, and they come and they're raiding your boat? You're like, I, this is going to work out perfectly. But it was, like, the cold water amount of salt. So as the salt dissolves faster in warmer water, like, all these burlocks just start floating to mm-hmm. the top around your boat. And everything. what are those? The guy's like, I don't know, man. What, what are those? How did that get there? <laughs> yeah. Are those... Bu- Buoys? That's, yeah, I heard that. And I was like, no fucking way. Like, that's so fucking, like, ingenious. I, it's pretty brilliant, man. But he essentially ran most of New York's speakeasies in the beginning because he was able to go between. Him, not random. He supplied him, right? Yeah, yeah, supplied him. He didn't run him. He was just the, the means of the sale. Um, and he actually went up north into Canada there were these two French islands off of Newfoundland called St. Pierre and Maquillone. Maquillone. Do you say Newfoundland? Yeah. I say Newfoundland. Isn't it F-O-U-N-D? It is. 
Okay. Maybe I get associated too much with the dog. Could be, yeah. Newfies are they're cool dogs. Uh, but he would float up to these two French islands. I don't know how France got a hold of Canada or those Dude, islands. French Canadian, Montreal, that whole yeah, area. but that's all inland. It is, but that's still the guess, east entire way. east coast of like those islands may not have been their property. But yeah, like that's why like there's French Canadians and everything. But yeah, like you were saying, guess what? These French companies, this thing also worldwide. Like think of all of the money that was being lost from import export import and export like all these countries that were used to this american you know consumer that was drinking up all their shit and you know making them all the money france was like you know we got these islands all these companies were like we'll just send the shit to these islands and you can just fucking snag it from there (laughs) yeah there had to have been a boat or something that went back to france and they said this Bill McCoy guy keeps showing up to our islands and buying a set of all of our alcohol. Can we just start sending more over? I think this guy means business. Well, if you didn't have a fleet of boats, you weren't a rum runner, you didn't have islands that you could access, what were your options? Uh, Speakeasies, homebrew, um, this whole Volstead thing, the changes that it made to America that we still see today... Or just it absolutely blows me away. And before we get into where other the opportunities are, this just absolutely surprises me. But the first six months of the ban, there were seven thousand two hundred and ninety-one cases of the Volstead Act violations that were open. And there's only fifteen hundred of these guys yeah. that are like. Uh, but those are the guys that probably are like trying to take care of the larger things. You probably also had local police that were like. Making like arrests and things Still, like that. Dude. God, think of being a cop and being like, "I'm sorry," like whispering to the guy you're walking out and being like, "This is fucking stupid. I apologize. Mm-hmm. I, I'm gonna have to go home and have a fucking drink after this." Uh, you do have to think for the seven thousand plus cases, there were probably twenty one thousand plus times that they arrested them and just let them go the other two thirds of the time. Yeah. But probably essentially, just confiscated the booze. Yeah, not yeah, even just, thinking about that. If you're a cop, and I'm not saying like you know the corruption, everything like that. I am okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but you obviously had Chicago, which was corrupt as fuck, and had Al Capone had like half the police force or more in his pocket, which is why he was able to run the operation. But you would also have during raids and things like that. There had to have been guys just fucking putting stuff in their jackets. Oh yeah. The whole entire time. You, you just have them carrying around. He's like, why are you carrying around a canteen, an empty canteen all the time? <laughs> he's like, ah, it's, he's like, it's, you never drink out of it. There's never water. And he's like, ah, I'm just forgetful. It's just in case they end up running into an area where it's just barrels. He could just fucking jab a hole in it and fill it up. Uh-huh. Yeah. Just something, something quick to start stocking up back at home. Or maybe he's or, running a little light that day. So or he pulls over someone that's trying to, you know, transport this shit. And he's like, fill this up and I didn't see you here. Uh-huh. I just, I, let me just go back and I'm, let me just inspect it. Maybe take a little bit of a tax for myself. A million different ways that they would probably be able to game this system. But for the legal system, having to deal with all these cases, the shitty thing happens that whenever these cases would go to trial, mm-hmm. nobody would ever get convicted because it was impossible to find a full jury that would convict these Volstead violations <laughs> A jury of your peers. My peers all are fucking pissed off at this same thing. So essentially what they started to do was this is where like the proclivity to use a plea bargain would come in. And they would say, hey, 
we're going to take you to court. This is going to jam you up for a really long time. If you sign this plea deal to this lesser charge. Just scaring people into taking yeah, lesser charges. It, then we'll take them. And we even still see this today is courts are just overrun with a million cases from all just the bullshit that people get arrested for. Not to say that everything is bullshit because there's still very bad things that happen. There's a lot of bullshit. Yeah. I'll say there's a lot of bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> and so we still use this same plan of knowing that these plea agreements were essentially people that could have been innocent or that didn't have any evidence against them wouldn't go to trial because they would be so scared of being held up. We still did the same shit today that they were doing back then. All these plea deals just started flowing in because how are you going to get through 7,000 cases yeah. in the first six months? Like and we're anything, not talking and anything you can get out of people that you're going to eventually get nothing out of you'll take. Yeah. So the first, you know, six months, this is what happens. Imagine for the next 13 years, how yeah. many people get arrested for it? Well, so we've kind of discussed how, you know, things were operating during Prohibition in the cities. Well, there's an entire area of America that wasn't, you know, urban. In fact, much, much more of it wasn't. That still affected the same way by Prohibition. So for them, they had to kind of find different ways in order to still enjoy, you know, alcohol and everything. And their stuff was a lot more, I think, kind of what people think of when they're thinking of, like, Prohibition moonshine and all that kind of stuff. In fact, so much so that bathtub gin and moonshine are the same thing. It's just it was called bathtub gin <laughs> in cities. In the north. And in, and in the south in the country, it was called moonshine. And within the first week of Prohibition, portable stills go on sale. Within a week. Which, uh, basically, if you don't know what you're doing, is just like giving somebody a bomb. <laughs> yeah. But you also did have people that had possibly been doing it themselves even prior to this. Yeah. And and making moonshine. And run and shine. And I don't know if we want to kind of... Actually, I want to mention this first, and then kind of talk about something... Again, something... Some people know about if they're into it, but people may not have made the connection. But... Kind of getting back to this, grape juice bricks. Wine Glow was the company. Vine 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 Glow, Glow yeah. Vine Glow, and so they would take grapes used for winemaking, and they would compress them down into these like hard bricks. We kind of like it's the same thing as like concentrated juice, like uh-huh. you get in the freezer section, except these things were like dry bricks, just dehydrated, dehydrated, and they were to make grape juice, like Welch's grape juice, whatever. Well, they had to make sure there was a warning on there that said, please don't put this in water and put it on a shelf for 60 days or else it'll ferment and you'll have alcohol. <laughs> and so Vine Glow is just like, fuck it. We have to put this on because it's a warning. But yeah, people were still able to essentially make wine. Can you imagine having to wait that 60 days? Yeah. You just constantly have them with different like dates on them. Uh-huh. Like, you're like, this one's almost ready. This one's almost ready. By the time I drink this one, this one should be ready. And the kids are real rough on you that day, and your your newest, closest one is still like three days away, but you're still worried about mm-hmm. the, the Vine Glow ad. The other reason that Vine Glow and the rest of these vineyards were still able to stay afloat was the other rule besides the medicinal liquor was you still couldn't ban alcohol for religious practices. So they so said the <laughs> they said that the Catholic well, enrollment 
went just through the roof. I need me that blood of the sacrament. Yeah, can you imagine? Skip what? the cracker, father. <laughs> How bad would you need alcohol to just be like, oh shit? They do, do communion every I, Sunday. I just have this image of him going to pour the wine. You know how he holds it to your lips? And someone just grabbing the cup with both hands and just... They're like, they're filling like half full yeah. things of wine. It's taken the line taste yeah. for fucking ever because everyone's got to sit there and pound it. He looks inside the goblet. Uh, a little light on that pour there, Padre. Uh-huh. He's like, you're not supposed to drink the whole thing. Slips him five bucks. He's like, yeah, I think it is a little light on the poor. Hey, man, you didn't know me before I became Catholic. I got a lot of making up to do. Oh, another thing we forgot to mention that I thought was awesome. Going back to the medicinal liquor thing, there was this little company in Chicago that was a pharmacy. May not know their names. Yeah. uh, Walgreens? Walgreens. Walgreens? Walgreens. Oh, that's right. Who started Prohibition with like five stores. And by the end of Prohibition, had like hundreds, and is now a fucking nationwide chain. Yep, and they are on every goddamn corner, and it was mainly just them being able to make money on this prescription liquor. They were selling it under the table, fucking hand over fist. Well, and they were filling the prescriptions, too. Yeah. So They were doing both. Uh-huh. So you're making money on both sides. Either you, way, you win, brother. Do you think it was originally supported by the mob, being in Chicago? Uh, Maybe. I feel like they were... Well, I don't feel like there could be an alcohol racket in that town if, without them having some type of like awareness of it. Yeah, they probably didn't start out mob-run companies, but they definitely ended... The mob had their fingers high. deep mm-hmm. inside them at some point. Very much. Okay, well, so getting back to essentially people kind of out in the country now where they're moonshining, well, if you're running illegal alcohol, well, you're going to start getting chased from the, by the police. And if you want to try to outrun the police... You're going to have to start souping up and making your car faster. Which is awesome because thinking about that back then, souping up your car to go faster was probably 45 miles Less. an hour. <laughs> I think they said that like the like police cars at that point could do like maybe like, yeah, you're actually probably M- Model more T's were that. clocking in right like, around like 30, 35. The cops were probably going up to 40. And so they're souping these things up to go 45, 50 miles an hour. Well, you have these moonshiners outrunning the cops, and then during like their free time, it starts to develop this culture around cars, and they start getting together to race these souped-up cars. This is the invention of NASCAR, and I'm not just saying that like this turned in like this is how NASCAR was formed. After Prohibition, they didn't need to run shine anymore, but they still liked doing this thing that they had built up during this time. And it was turned into what we know as NASCAR today. Can you imagine that? Like, we did the Formula One episode where I was talking about that and how I compared one to filet mignon and one to burgers. Yeah. Everything. I I stand by that even more in regards to this because where it's like Formula One was started out of the country, trying countries in Europe trying to beat each other and, you know, engineering and mechanical fields and everything. And here it's just like, no, we got our start because people like to drink our fucking bathtub gin and we had to fucking be able to outrun the cops to transport this shit in nascar this is the comparison of nascar being a mullet compared to like f1 being a comb over like a comb over is usually a, don't say it come on, just say a nice style no 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 because the mullet you're free flowing you're you're probably got a case that's pending somewhere i love that the fact that this is how now there could not be anything no, more perfect. american than one of our biggest like sports or forms of entertainment being based out of like running from the cops. Uh-huh. 
Yeah, this is, if you told me that hockey was created by like pucks of frozen maple syrup that they used to pass back and forth to each other, that wouldn't be as like perfect as NASCAR coming from breaking the law running booze. Like it just it makes total sense that this is how it would happen. And you do kind of wonder like how could NASCAR have started other than this? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, another source of alcohol, which this was fucking news to me. I it makes sense when you hear about it. Industrial alcohol. Yeah, this I I had always wondered what the word denatured meant mm-hmm. because it doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, denatured is just basically adding more chemicals to something to kill the natural part of it. Yeah. So basically, you have these factories, plants. Industrial alcohol was used in so many different things. So I kind of. It reminds me of uh, Breaking Bad, where he goes and he makes the deal, where Walter makes the deal with or Gus does with the like uh, chemical supplier overseas to get in like the methylamine that they're gonna in bulk to the laundry, yeah, to laundry and everything like that. This is what this reminds like. It's basically them getting alcohol from an industrial scale, but this stuff is not like essentially made for human consumption. Initially, you can. But to prevent people from doing it, like Adam said, they did this thing called denaturation. And they said that they did it because it would ruin the taste and make it undrinkable. Not the fact that you couldn't drink it and get fucking drunk amongst many other horrible things. But, like, people still did this regardless. They tried to do a process called the renature, yeah, renaturation, where you had, like, mobs and people running these big booze um, operations would hire chemists to see what they could do about re-naturation of this alcohol, where they would then try to remove all of the bad shit and try to then make it more consumable or consumable for people. Which, thinking about it, I don't know how really tough it would be, because all these alcohols probably have a different like steam point on them. Yeah. So if you're running them through stills and you know that at like 2.15 this type of alcohol burns off, then you just wait till that alcohol in a still you're goes talking, through. You, you're, but could you do that in practice right now? I understand you're but saying – As a scientist simple. though. We're talking science. I know, but how science. many people were, didn't have a fucking scientist? I'm saying they tried to get chemists, but like how many of these people that were trying this actually had like – you know it was just them fucking testing it on a few guys and being like, can you drink this? Oh, yeah, this? no. The, you, yeah. the confirmation that you renatured the alcohol was probably to a select few that got very, I don't very see sick. It, I see it more as like someone just like mixing shit like in a fucking dusty like fucking old warehouse versus how I think you're seeing it where they're like in the nice sterilized lab and no. they're both looking at the dropper of the chemicals going in. They were using stills. They were using whiskey stills yeah. to do this and that's what I'm saying. So like to use a whiskey still properly basically you heat the mash up to the point to where all the alcohol starts to evaporate but what do you do with the alcohol already made that's what i'm saying i think it's more complex if you take denatured alcohol though and all those alcohols have different steam points Mm -hmm. on them you can heat them up to a certain level where those other alcohols will burn off and you'll just have the regular alcohol but what if the methyl alcohol which is the thing that they added to it that was like the deadly thing what if that had a higher steam point than all the other desirable alcohols then you would just steam everything out and leave the methyl behind. I'm, I've smoked too much to understand this conversation regarding <laughs> okay. how you're trying to tell me how a fucking still works. I, well, essentially, it had to. It was to bad, Adam, is what I'm trying to get. It didn't. It didn't work. It did though until they added what you were talking about with the methyl because the mob was using this to where they were uh, 
fixing this denatured alcohol and renaturing it. Then they were bottling it up in like knockoff bottles of these special gin and all these different kinds of spirits yeah. because they were actually adding flavor to them. And that's where we get mixed drinks today. Um, did you know that an old fashioned was created through this situation because they actually had to add the sugar and add the simple syrup and everything to oh, yeah. make this, it taste This fine? was like the birth of the cocktail because you had all of these alcohols that people were getting that were not good quality. When you're talking about bathtub gin and moonshine and everything like that, you have to start doing stuff that's going to change the taste or make it more palatable. palatable. So you kind of have people now mixing it with soda, mixing it with juice, adding you know sugar to it, all that kind of stuff. And that's why you get a lot of these like cocktails that have been like mainstays in our country for so long, the Manhattan, all this kind of stuff, because Sidecar, you basically, yeah. yeah, you basically had to fucking like church this shit up because it tasted so shitty. Which, you had to make you had to make it seem you couldn't like have your girl sitting there drinking at like fucking straight straight <laughs> alcohol. She's like, I can't drink this. Can we can we get some fruit juice for the lady? Yeah, it's you got to think that that was that was how much people were committed to drinking alcohol was they were willing to drink it straight. Like, oh god, this is awful. Why don't we put some fruit in this? And they were still just figuring out ways to get drunk. It, it got so bad, man. That you know, Sterno little sterno cans that you yeah. use to heat that you use i guess you use to heat them but like if you think about a like a buffet or like a hotel underneath chafing dishes yeah they exactly. keep stuff hot and everything those little things that burn so those are like little sterno cans the sterno fuel people were drinking that they would force it through a makeshift filter and when i say makeshift filter i'm like a handkerchief yep. is what they were talking about and would drink this shit like i'm sorry but the fuck is a handkerchief going to ke- pull out of it? Uh, just anything that's super solid and gel-like. I understand it's still going to be really rough, but it's, I think, probably the difference between whatever gets through the handkerchief you can drink and whatever doesn't you would have to eat. Can you imagine what you, your fucking insides would feel like? Oh, I, have you smelled Sternos? Yes. The smell alone is not in the least bit appetizing. I don't. I don't walk up to a buffet and look under the chafing dish and be like, "Is anyone done with this?" So yeah, um, essentially, like you were talking about with the methyl alcohol that they had added to it, it went from oh, fuck, what was it? I think they said uh, it went from like four parts. Yeah, that one's coming up. It went from like four parts to like over a hundred parts methyl alcohol. Yeah, they just kept so, at, like they they were like, oh, they're still doing this. So instead of figuring out a different way to do it, they're just like, fucking put more of the poison in it. Mm-hmm. Make they, it harder for them to make it palatable. It's guess what? They're not gonna stop. They're just gonna keep fucking passing off the even worse. Yeah fucking alcohol. And it got to a point to where the level was so high that they essentially couldn't get it all out. Uh, it ended up causing, they said, and this is just an estimate based upon everything that happened during the prohibition, but as many as 10,000 people died due to drinking just bad denatured What they considered alcohol. like poisoned alcohol. Others, and that's not, those are just the people that died. That's not counting how many people experienced like paralysis and were like blindness. Like fuck, yeah. You always hear that like old like I don't know if you would call like an old wives tale or an urban legend, but like drinking moonshine will make yeah, you blind or something. Moonshine and uh, jerking off are the two things that'll make you go blind. Oh, and sitting too close to the TV. So three things. 
At least that's oh what my I God, was told. I, I fucking dodged a bullet that I can still see. <laughs> <laughs> Those are like three of my favorite things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, the way that I see it and the way that it feels, I think the way that the public saw it was the government almost knowingly poisoned these people. Like adding more poison to the mix wasn't going to stop people from drinking. It was just basically like knowingly pouring lead into the water. It was an water. escalation. It's like, oh, yeah? Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah. And more. And just over time, that's when people started looking more. The mob was the one that was supplying the liquor, but the mob really started to get a handle on the brewing process, too. Uh, before we jump into that, can we take a bathroom break? Yeah, let's talk about drinking. I understand that. <laughs> well, hey there, all you sexy historians. How you guys doing? It is time for social. Where can they find us on Instagram? If they want to uh, follow us, they can find us at Historically High Pod on Instagram. That goes the same for Threads as well. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter. Ooh, tell them about Twitter. Historically High. That's historically H I on Twitter. And if you want to email any of your comments or suggestions, where can they find us at, Adam? At Historically High Podcast at gmail.com. Gmail. All right, and back to the show. All right, and we're back. Hey, while we have you, right after a little breaky, just letting you know remember with this podcast, we do it for viewers like you, and we love the support. So, you know, rate, review, Subscribe, all that good stuff on iTunes, Spotify, however you prefer to receive your podcast. Please give us fives. Fives would make this podcast grow exponentially. Fives me so horny. Every time we get a good five star rating, it helps bump us up in the search engine. And if we... every time you rate five star, an angel gets his wings. That <laughs> too, yeah. And every time you rate us below, a puppy dies. Uh, and I mean, if I could, I can't even explain to you the amount of ideas that we have to do once this thing gets a little bit more growth. So, oh. yeah, um, back into Prohibition, we have the mobsters that are just basically cleaning up in the big cities. Uh, on the other side of the coin, in some of these smaller towns, uh, Surprise, surprise, surprise on the side of temperance and the movement to try to enforce prohibition. The Ku Klux Klan gets involved. We traded our washing machine to get him. They punch in bunches. The KKK. Yeah, apparently before this, the KKK was kind of going away. It was on the downswing. It was on the downswing. And thanks to the temperance movement... They could really get by. You know what? I have a hard time believing hmm. that there was not drinking going on at clan clan rallies or whatever. You're going to come up with the name like Grand Wizard and like Ultimate Dragon and all that shit. And they're not drinking like, hey, we should call ourselves Wizards and Dragons. <laughs> then people would take us seriously. Which I don't like that because that gives a bad name to Wizards and Dragons. Uh, D&D we need to reclaim not, those. D&D is not a uh, all-inclusive Ku Klux Klan welcoming party i'm sure yeah so in these small towns anybody that even had like a beyond uh terrorizing the catholic people and any minorities that were in these small towns basically if they thought that you were selling liquor or that there was a rumor that maybe somebody had drank too much at your establishment 
The Ku Klux Klan would show up and they would throw one of their trademark lowercase T's out in front of your bar or your house or anything like that, and they'd light that shit aflame. Uh, just all sorts but not of... not with alcohol. Scare tactics? Just huh? regular gas. They would yeah. use alcohol for fire. <laughs> That's probably what they were drinking, was mm-hmm. the gasoline that they were using to pour on the lowercase T's. <laughs> Gotta be. So, just back into the cities, we run into possibly the crime boss of all crime bosses. Well, most well-known gangster of all time. Albert Alfonso Ribeiro Capone. Was that really his name? No. <laughs> oh, okay. I could see where he get the L's from. Isn't Alfonso Ribeiro (laughs) the dude from uh, Fresh Prince? Ribeiro? Yeah. (laughs) So we get the boss of bosses coming out of the Chicago outfit. This guy was the bootleg kingpin of Prohibition. Worked out of South Chicago. Uh, He initially came in there. We're not going to go into Al Capone, but he initially came in as a small-time guy. Kind of took over by storm and basically controlled the entire flow of alcohol in the city of Chicago and thus all the areas that it was transferring out to guys making money hand over fist. And essentially they sent like a special task force The movie, the untouchables super, super loosely based on this, but he had a task force actually sent by the federal government. What do you mean? Super loosely based on this. It's completely based on this. The movie. I meant like base, like loosely, it loosely follows the actual events. Yeah, but it's essentially the entire story. It's called of The Untouchables. And Elliot it has Ness. Elliot Ness in it and Al Capone. You don't think that some of the stuff that they you don't think that they brought Elliot Ness in as like a creative coordinator on the script or anything? No, he he died. He was dead before they made the movie. I guess the issue with The Untouchables for me is I always forget that even though it looks like it's shot in olden times, it's still Kevin Costner. It's like Greece. How old? It's like Greece. Yeah, how old do you think The Untouchables is? 80s? Yeah. Yeah, so I guess... It does a good job of transporting you back then. That's a good movie. Yeah. So he's handling stuff in Chicago. Other cities have, you know, people that are kind of also in in the same types of positions. But basically, the Northside gang... It's kind of like a Cubs, White Sox type thing. Mm-hmm. Um, they refused to essentially kind of fall into line with uh, with Mr. Capone and started what's known as the Beer Wars. And Capone was... Which a, just strikes me as something you'd be invited to in like a friend's backyard. Yeah, beer this, Wars. Uh-huh. That's exactly what it sounds like. But Capone wasn't like a, I'm going to show up and take over your area. He essentially on the south side, he worked with basically mobs of all ethnicities there were mm-hmm. black gangs that worked for him there were jewish gangs that worked for him and essentially it would just be he would come in and talk to them and be like look we can either fight for these areas and i don't know if you've seen the scar that's on the side of my face but we're pretty bad dude. we can do this the easy way or the hard way yeah and he shared a lot of his profits with these other gangs that he would work with Unfortunately, this Northside gang just was not willing to give up a lot of their... It wasn't necessarily give up their territory, but basically like share their territory so then they could share in the wealth. Give up their income. Yeah. So uh, the Beer Wars, Capone will be its own episode, um, but the Beer Wars just went back and forth with just mob hits and dead bodies in public after dead bodies in public. It was just everywhere. People getting whacked left and right. Uh, And essentially, I keep saying essentially, it's killing me. Um... The culmination of the Beer Wars, February 14th, 1929, was known as the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Um, The 
warehouse that they were in, it was just a brewery, which how weird is that, that there's just breweries that are in these places in like downtown. The cops this were is, being paid off, dude. Yeah, this is like it's well known. Clark Street and Lincoln Park in Chicago. You're like as downtown yeah. and on the water as you can get. And probably a lot of people friendly to the cause in the area. And yeah. also for fear of the mob, dude, no one's going to say shit. I guess that's a good point. Yeah, what you know that it's either the north side or Capone's racket, probably. So if you like say the anything, few blocks around the brewery, it's like instead of a milkman, you have the alcohol man. He just drops <laughs> it on your porch, and you're like, yeah. "All right, cool." You mean mom's the word? And just to that point, Capone was so well connected that he had bribed the bribers. Like he was so. I think they said at one point, seventy uh, percent of the Chicago police force had either taken a bribe from Capone or was actively being bribed they by call Capone. that being on the take just an incredible amount so this Northside brewery um, there were four members of Capone's outfit that had shown up uh, two of them were in police uniforms uh, they pop into this they think um, it's a raid yeah they, they pop into the warehouse like it's a raid and it just was a complete bloodbath there were two Tommy guns yeah um, so they break in. They say it's a raid. Normally during a raid, you're just going to be arrested. Like, the cops aren't basically, unless you fire back, the cops aren't firing at you. Like, they don't want this escalating. So I think they said that they came in and they lined the guys up like they were going to be searched or arrested. And then, yeah, they just Tommy gun the shit out of them. Which I didn't know, like, it makes sense that the Tommy gun was around back then because it's like Bonnie and Clyde, gangsters and everything like that. I didn't realize that it hadn't been invented for World War II because you see the Thompson and it's usually fielded by like sergeants and stuff like that. They would have the machine guns well, in World War II. Yeah, the invention of the Tommy gun though goes back to World War One. The end of it. He invented it right as World War One ended. Oh, so it never is, saw... They manufactured a shit ton of them and they were like $200 a piece. It'd be like $2,000 in today's money. They had nowhere to go with all the stock. And so the guy, his uh, the company was Thompson, or the guy that invented them, his name was Thompson, hence the name. And so he started selling these. And who has money to buy this kind of shit? Al Capone. Al Capone. People with uh, the means. Because like the cops, you know, police stations, a lot of them couldn't afford these. They were using service revolvers and shit. Yeah. So you had these gangsters using fucking like fully automatic submachine guns. Some of the police didn't even have guns. They were just walking beats. It was like being in goddamn Great Britain when they just had the, the little The Jack bats. the Ripper shit? Yeah. <laughs> so all in all, um, seven members, <coughs> excuse me, of the Northside gang and its affiliates were murdered. There was one guy that was still alive when they showed up. Uh, he'd only been shot 20 times and was somehow still alive enough for them to say, who did this to you? And he goes, Not nobody. dead yet. Nobody shot me. Like, that was just the code of being a gangster. Yeah. You don't narc, you don't tell. Uh, I feel like if you were shot 20 times, your outlook was going to be pretty bleak, so why not maybe try to narc at that point? Because what's the worst that's going to happen to you? You're already dying. Yeah. But to his credit, the man didn't do it. Um, But this was enough of an incident that when the news broke of the massacre across the country... People had just realized that Prohibition caused so much violence that everything was just out of control. Mm -hmm. The whole idea for Prohibition was to try to curb violence, was to try to curb crime. Yeah. Was to try to stop all this bad shit from happening. Like, things are now getting worse. Like, violence is even getting worse. Yeah. And 
Uh, I know they did say that it cut down initially in the beginning of Prohibition. It cut down, like, any kind of cirrhosis cases or anything like that by, like, a third. Mm -hmm. Uh, They said that they saw massive decreases in any sort of domestic violence calls that the police would happen to. So there was sort of a net gain at the beginning. Yeah. But at the same time, if you're dealing... Which is why it didn't get reversed right away. Yeah. If you see it working as it's intended... Then, of course, no one's going to go ahead and raise anything about it. But once it reaches essentially where it's like, what's now worth it? Like, violence, violence to home or violence in the city? Like, I don't know what that was. Are are we taking 10,000 deaths by denatured alcohol just in stride and saying, you know, that's... Those are deaths, but it was a different kind of death. Like, no, it's still death. Mm -hmm. It's still very sad, sad nature times. Well, as if on cue... As if things could not get much worse, we come to April 24th, 1929, which is known as Black Thursday. You might have heard of it. Basically plunging the United States into the Great Depression. So this was the stock market crash. Yeah, Black Thursday was very bad for Germany and it gave Hitler a a run back in into World War II or into power or trying to get power. But it was all caused by just this massive drop. I... Oh, shit. I think it dropped the Dow or the stock market dropped 15% the first day and then like another 10% or mm-hmm. another 15% the second day. Yeah, like you said, this had like worldwide reaching like repercussions. Like, again, good callback. If you haven't listened to the Hitler episodes, go back and listen to those and it'll explain how that actually helped lead to Hitler's rise to power. But with unemployment, skyrocketing businesses closing up, and basically the people that this affected the most were the same people that Prohibition had affected the most. It was just basically the common people, people already on the poverty line and, you know, trying to find what little work they can. When you have to try to look for survival and there's already an industry that's thriving on the criminal enterprise of, you know, moving alcohol, you're going to have an entirely new workforce to pull from and new operations to set up. If you're not getting jobs that are legitimate, you still have to provide. Just because you don't have a job doesn't mean the bills stop coming in. doesn't yeah. mean you have to stop providing. You have to figure out a means of any way to be able to mm-hmm. make that money. And crime just spread. And it got worse and worse and worse. Um, Herbert Hoover was the one that was in power during uh, the Great Depression. He's actually attributed to the term Hooverville. I don't know if anybody else has heard about that. Uh, also, Hoover Flags. So Hoovervilles were basically when the stock market crashed, everybody lost where they were living because they couldn't afford to pay rent. There were just these tent cities and parks, and they were just people trying to survive that found a common place to stay, and they were just living in tents. They were called Hoovervilles because he was the man in power when this happened. Hoover flags were when you pull your- make you watch. How the Grinch Stole Christmas in a every time they say Hooverville, you're going to be like, Hooverville? <laughs> no, this is a nice part of mm-hmm. town. It's not Hooverville. Uh, Hoover flags were when you pulled your pockets mm-hmm. out and you pulled them out like elephant ears. Those mm-hmm. were your Hoover flags. Like I'm broke. That were I don't have yeah, anything. There's nothing yeah. in there. Means something different in prison. <laughs> yeah. You don't, you don't, you're going to be somebody's boyfriend or girlfriend in prison when you do that. But uh, he was a staunch prohibitionist. He really believed that this was a net positive for the country. Uh, he clearly did not have the pulse of the country. He ran on that platform as kind of like his main cornerstone of what he was running for was to try to fix the Great Depression with no real plan, but people that were pushing for the abolition of 
Abolition of Prohibition. Does that work? Yeah. Um, but they they just wanted it. That out. had to have been on signs, right? Huh? That had to have been on signs or been a chant back abolition then. Abolition prohibition? Yeah. Or abolish prohibition? I'd like the abolition of prohibition. <laughs> Either way. But uh yeah, he ended up winning the Republican nomination for just running doing what he was doing. Yeah, r- running his re-election campaign. Uh and that's when he runs into a very, very important ally. Uh, before we talk about that ally, we got a flashback to Al Capone. Um, public sentiment really weighed on Al Capone when they saw just the victims because it wasn't a real big surprise who killed the Northside gang. Mm-hmm. Like it was, pr- they were pretty sure that it was a Chicago outfit and it was Capone. When when stuff was kind of staying relatively small for the violence, I mean, there still was violence. He was providing essentially kind of a public service, and I'm not saying that like in a positive way. I'm just saying that the public still wanted to drink. They knew that Al Capone was the source of that kind of stuff. And when it, again, it was you know a net positive to allow a little bit of this for a lot of this. The public was fine with it, but as the violence increased, innocents started getting killed and everything. The public's not going to be behind Al Capone, and as soon as they found that loophole to where they had public opinion on the side of maybe taking him down. That's kind of when, um, I think those federal agents were working on it. You know, the ones working with Elliot Ness, um, they were just looking for a loophole to do that. Weirdly enough, without going into much details, didn't even get the guy on any type of alcohol related charges. Nope. All tax evasion. Um, and part of the reason why Capone was so loved, uh, in today's dollars, they said that during Capone's most successful years, he was making the equivalent of what a hundred million dollars a year was. That was how much money he was making back then, and he was pushing it into the public. So he was building libraries, making. He was pushing separate. enough of it into the public to make it to get public sentiment. Yeah, yeah, but eventually, when you do bad enough shit, people, no matter how many good things These you books do, books are for them, stained in blood. Yeah, it's it's just an awful thing. So yeah, he ends up going away um, on tax evasion charges. Spends eleven years in federal prison. Didn't know that. Pretty excited for the Capone episode because I thought he died in prison. Mm-mm. Didn't happen. No, he he lived a short, unfulfilled life after getting out, which is kind of nice. But that's a story for a different day. So getting um, back to the Great Depression, you get running against Hoover, you get FDR. You might have heard of him. Franklin Delano. Delano? Delano? Delano, I think. Delano Roosevelt. He wins the Democratic nomination basically on the platform of what was called the New Deal. And one of the fixtures of the New Deal was that he was like, you know what? Enough with this prohibition shit. We need to we need to get past this and get on with our lives. Well, how did the government used to fund themselves? With the alcohol tax. Yep. And he's yeah. like, so now, but wait, wait, wait. We will not be getting rid of the income tax. Don't don't get excited there. Once we rebuild pro repeal prohibition, we're just gonna reinstitute that alcohol tax as well. But you guys are gonna be so fucking happy that you can buy booze again. No one's really gonna give a shit. I'm sure that there were even some people that thought to themselves, he's not gonna be able to charge us twice because I don't have any income right now. So yeah. he'll just only be able to get me on the booze. But he ends up just bending Hoover over a barrel and showing him the fifty states. Or 48 states at, that time. <laughs> at this time in the 1932 present election. So we get FDR coming in um, to take over for Hoover. Of course, he moves his private stock that yeah. he still has even this late. Or no, that's, yeah, in 32 that he still has it at this point. The staunch prohibitionist moved his stash of liquor. Yeah. 
the guy that was against it yeah. moved his stash of liquor, which... To make I've, room for FDR's uh-huh. stash of liquor. And I'm sure that there's no way that Hoover had replenished his stock of booze well... Oh, of course that, not. There's no chance. Of course not. None of that found it. No, nothing found its way back into his possession. No, he'd walk down to the cellar and he'd grab bottle number 100 out of the 99 that were left and he'd walk back down there and there'd just He be never 200. walked down there and went, oh, so little left. Yeah, there's no chance. Not a chance. But yeah, uh, prior to the Volstead Act, 14% of state, local, and federal tax revenue came from alcohol sales. 14%. That's a whole lot of money to a very depressed nation. Mm -hmm. And because it's a depressed nation, what are people going to want to do? Drink. They're going to want to drink. Everybody's going to want to drink. It's... I'm shocked. Uh, talking about before the amount of alcohol that people would drink on like a yearly basis, I understand it. That everything kind of seems like it just wasn't great back then. We had had this conversation a few days ago, just amongst ourselves. I I'm not built for anything. You made a great point. I'm not built for anything after or before pre Vietnam. Yeah, pre Vietnam. Yeah. Everything just sounds really bad. I'm yeah. not sure. I'm. We have listeners that had to have lived before that, right? Maybe? I would imagine. Yeah, good chance. But everything just doesn't seem great. Well, and kind of getting back to the whole thing with, you know, the presidents transferring their stashes and everything. And then I think we got to mention earlier in the episode, people in Congress weren't worried. They knew they were going to get what they wanted to get. Yeah. yeah. And so did you hear about the man in the green hat? Uh, Was that the guy that gave himself up? Well, so the man in the green hat was the congressional bootlegger. Basically, he was the bootlegger for Congress, and he his name was George Cassidy. He delivered some days up to twenty five times per day to Capitol Hill. He would carry like a big leather briefcase type bag, and they said he could bring in like six balls at a time. He would just literally walk down the halls of Congress and just stop into offices to drop off their liquor deliveries. He ended up getting caught like in a government sting that found out what he was doing. But for and for the longest time, I mean, he was doing this and just making sure Congress was still well lubricated. Wasn't he the one that narked on all the guys too? That narked on all the. They senators? said they never released. He had a client list oh. of who it was, but they never released it. Can you imagine that getting out? Oh, it'd be like great. just the fucking kill. It should have come out technically, because you would see a lot of people. The people that were already anti-prohibition, everyone's gonna be like, of course they're drinking. They're anti-prohibition. It was about the people that were staunch prohibitionists that it probably had the most to lose. And I'm guessing there were a lot of fucking names on that list. This is where I have my issue with government today. Oh, this is where you have your issue. Yeah. (laughs) This is the line you've... This is what finally fucking did it. This is kind of just... It is kind of the first sentence and the last sentence of all this. This was the 1920s. Mm Mm-hmm. And there was probably a majority of the politicians in this country that were breaking their own prohibition rule that they had either voted for or were in support of. I can confidently confirm that. And to this day, there's still people that have loads of trust in politicians. Despite them doing things to the contrary of what they say. Constantly. Yeah. And again, uh, we need a government. We don't learn our lessons. We're fucking stupid species. Yeah, we we need to we need to try to trust government at some point. But animals learn not to touch the fence that shocks them. Yeah, we don't fucking <sighs> learn that. We're just like, oh, we, we got distracted. What is this doing? 
This is the only time that George Bush was ever correct when he said trust but verify. Yeah. Trust these people to a certain extent, but always make sure that there should be a way that you can make, like, check and see that politicians aren't just a bunch of hypocritical assholes. If they have politician in their That's name, chances are probably yeah. going to be an indicator <laughs> okay. of that. Yeah, I can't really <laughs> put lipstick on that pig. Well, thankfully, March 22nd, 1933 rolls it around, and uh, Roosevelt gets to sign an amendment to the Volstead Act called the Cullen-Harrison Act, allowing the manufacturing of up to 3.2% beer. So much as if leading into Prohibition, these little things were planted to start kind of like, I, I think it's like, I use the comparison, like how they use like wet and dry states. Yeah. It's like, God, wouldn't you much rather live in a, even just the term, you want to live in a wet state or you want to live in a dry state? I want my state wet. Yeah, I just... Just swampy. <laughs> It's uh, three point. I I never saw a number. What was an average beer back then? I think it was still around 4.5, maybe a little bit more like a heavy beer is today. Because 3.2 seems low. That's like the Utah beer. Yeah. That's like the beer you can get in Utah. So we're going to run into something (laughs) fun with them soon, too. So, kind of like how they were prepping the country to, you know, they were drying out the country. Uh oh. Franklin Delano is getting us wet again. He gets, FDR he's us, stood up to the man. He's getting, there you go. <laughs> he's getting us so wet. So, yeah, so they start manufacturing basically, I guess you'd call it near beer. Close enough, light yeah. beer. And then after getting us warmed up with that, the 18th Amendment is actually repealed on December 5th, 1933, with the ratification of the 21st Amendment, so, thus ending prohibition. They had figured out a little backdoor to getting the 21st Amendment. That's why they had to get us wet. That's why they had to, FDR had to get us wet first. Uh, He knew that the two-thirds majority of the state congresses probably wasn't going to happen. So there was a backdoor where you could call for a special assembly of the states. Mm Mm-hmm. And these special assembly members weren't all Congress. It was just like special assembly of other government officials. Okay. And they knew that going that route, they were going to be able to get these positives for the special assemblies. So that makes sense because like, whereas the politics, like the people in Congress, they would be beholden to what could get them reelected and side on the temperance side, where if they were actually going down to like, the street level, not the street level, but more localized level where people were, you know, kind of had the pulse of the people more. They're like, yeah, uh, these people want to drink. <laughs> have have you fucking seen it out there? We do too. It's fucking depressing. <laughs> uh, so the very last state to ratify the 21st Amendment, any guesses? Yeah. <laughs> it was good old Utah. <laughs> Tell me that that makes zero sense, that one of the weirdest states in the country... Weren't they, like, the last one? Yeah, they were. When I say the last one, I meant, like, they could have either gone this way, and it would have... Um, I think they would have had it, because there was almost a race. I think there were two other states that oh, okay. had, were trying to push up their <laughs> assemblies to get it. Can you imagine it's just, like, the meme with the guy over the button, and it's Utah being like, do we want to be the hero? Do we want to be the hero? And he's like, fuck it! Press it! <laughs> Uh, I do think one of the scary parts of it was um, a gentleman, I think, going back to my uh, upbringing, I think it was Heber J. Grant was the president of the Mormon church in Utah. He essentially told the government, no, 
if you have any respect for this state of Utah that only got to continue being a state because you made my people give up polygamy, you will not let prohibition fall. And everybody else in Utah is like, we want to be the reason that it falls. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, yeah. Let us be the hero. (laughs) Do you know how people look at us right now because of you? Yeah, exactly. Let us do something good for the people. Maybe Maybe they'll just be like, you know, the Mormons are kind of weird, but hey, they did get us alcohol back, so they're fine. Yeah, yeah maybe maybe just for once, when somebody says Mormon, they don't go, ugh, Do you think that was a tagline for a while? It's like Mormonism, we got you the booze. It, it, yeah, hey, I don't you guys know why they would have used it. You guys are that state that got us the alcohol back. Yes, we are. May we have a minute to speak to you about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> would you like to let us in your house? Yeah, just a... A crazy turn of events to where FDR knew that he couldn't spin his wheels. He had to get something done pretty much immediately to get the country turned back around. And what better of an injection of money into the country than starting to tax alcohol again and just being able to make that money? Uh, That wasn't where prohibitions ended. The only thing that prohibition really did was uh, to make it not illegal on a federal level. They still left it up to the states to go through and write their own alcohol laws Mm -hmm. as far as what they wanted, how they wanted it. That's where we see some pretty goofy shit in a lot of states. Uh, Like our state, you aren't allowed to buy alcohol the, I think it's the day of an election. Okay. Like all liquor stores are closed and all of our liquor stores here are all run by the state. Yeah, we we don't have separate, like you can't get liquor in a grocery store. Yeah, so uh, these are still kind of zones and laws that each state makes up. Some are more lenient than others. Uh, I believe I saw in Wyoming that you could do a drive through liquor and fireworks stand. Fuck yes. Which sounds pretty cool. <laughs> I'm surprised. Shout that- out Montana. At Wyoming. Oh, Montana Wyoming. probably has it too, knowing how that works. But I got to assume if that's in the system up there, everybody from Wyoming only has eight to nine digits. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Just with that combination. Uh, there's still places in our country today. There's still 83 dry counties in the United States. Yeah, and there's a ton of crazy rules. Like you can't buy beer on Sundays in some places. Yep. Like places that are like more like in the Bible Belt and areas like that. A lot of states have rules in which the earliest time you can buy alcohol or the latest you can serve alcohol. These are all things that kind of stemmed with states kind of making up their own shit after Prohibition. And we see a lot of those things, you know, still today. The people that brought us alcohol, Utah, Mm -hmm. have to use something called an AccuPore system to where you put the bottle of liquor in this basically like a round hole in a weird sexual way, and then when you pour it, it measures out the exact amount of alcohol and then cuts off the stream. So, so it's basically just like a spout that like recognizes the amount going One through. and a half ounces okay. of whatever you're doing to make sure that there's no overpours. Uh, when they do inspections on bars, mm-hmm. you have to be, I think it's like 98% accurate. So you have, I think it's 97. So you have 3% that you No can- one has a heavy pour. Yeah. Uh, it's Why did it stop? I, I'm sorry, sir. It's the fucking spout. <laughs> For the longest time, if they were to make you a drink, they weren't allowed to do it in public. Like somehow the act of making the drink was the devil himself showing up. Oh, I had a question about this because I, I think I know the answer already, but I thought it was funny. I was watching a documentary and one of the guys they were talking to, he's like, I'm a master mixologist. And as soon as I heard that, 
I felt like the credibility of the documentary had gone down and I wasn't sure if I want to continue watching it. Douche meter went off. How do you, how do you feel about the term mixologist? I think I know, but I'm just curious. Uh, the same way I feel about bud tender. Okay. Like, uh, I'm sure that it's a title. It's, it's gotta be a title. I, have, I, I like the play on words of, but I don't, you know, it's not, it's not my favorite term, but I at least like the play on words. The facts that, that you want to make like, the character from fucking cocktail, <laughs> cocktail. <laughs> yeah. and everything like that sound like some type of like scientist or something like that. Like I'm a mixologist. And the way this guy said it was not ironic in any way. He wasn't being like, Hey, it was like, that's what he did. It's just, I, I'm not crazy about it. And if that term came out of prohibition, then that's something that also goes as a knock against it. Yeah. I do think it's mixologist is sort of like doctor. When you hear somebody say doctor, you just assume that it's medical. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you and not hear that they just have a doctorate, yeah, yeah, because there are it's in, the Doctor Ross Geller <laughs> thing. Yeah. In the world, there are mixologists that are like world class drink pourers that can blind pour anything to the exact amounts they're creating drinks out there. I don't think those people are the ones that call themselves mixologists. No, it's like out of the. 70% of bartenders that call themselves mixologists, there's like 5% that are actual mixologists. It's just like a bastardization of the word. Well, what happened after Prohibition was finally repealed is I think uh, Anheuser-Busch had been given permission to start manufacturing beer because they knew that it was going to happen. It had to have been Colin Harrison probably once they heard that. Yeah, and so they started manufacturing, and that's why the day it was repealed, people were – you'll see pictures of people like raising a glass to the end of Prohibition and everything like that. The first delivery of beer was I think to the White House or one of the first deliveries uh-huh. was actually to, um, to FDR – and everything. And he said something about like, I think America needs a drink or I think yep. I'll have a drink or something. And so April 7th, which I think was like a month later, something like that actually became national beer day. And that's when the advent of national beer day came about. Did you know that national beer day was a thing before this? No, I didn't. Yeah. I had no idea too. It's become more of a holiday for it's like, now it's like every NFL Sunday, most uh-huh. Saturdays in the summer, Sundays as well. Tuesday after When work. you're mowing the yard, like any day can be national beer, beer day if you really believe it. But yeah, crazy time in our country. So oh. many things coming out of it. Uh, the last state to end prohibition, of course, just like the last state, mostly everything. I'm sorry if any of our listeners are from Mississippi. Uh, Mississippi ended in 1966. The whole state? Yeah. The God. whole state, dude. 1966. At, at that point, though, like where you're like surrounded on all sides by other states, it probably wasn't too hard to, to no, get it's, booze. It's like you But the simple fact that you now. couldn't go out and socialize in that type of environment or anything like that, it was fucking insane. They're just like, when, wait, someone comes to visit <laughs> fucking Mississippi in like the 50s. They're like, let's go get a beer. Let's talk about it. And be like, yeah, let's have a beer. Like, let's go out to the fridge and grab one. And he's like, no, man, let's go out. Let's go, you know, be around some people, listen to some yeah, music. Yeah, out to the garage? Yeah. Okay, well, I can turn on the radio out in the garage. What's going on, man? Uh, there's fucking still prohibition here what my fucking dad told me about that <laughs> yeah or the the guys that went off to world war ii and like prohibition had already ended everything was looking good 
Mississippi was still illegal, but there was really hopes. And then you go over and fight a whole goddamn war, and you come back and you're ready for a drink. This like, shit is still a thing. Yeah, we're still doing this. That's when you when you came back, you were just like you going back home. You're like, nah, not back to Mississippi. <laughs> New Orleans sounds a mm-hmm. lot better right yep. now. But yeah, man, just kind of a fucking thirteen years that this stuff went down. Everything that came out of it, the the. It was, like, supposed to stifle, and what came out of it was all of this, like, cultural variety and all these things that we still kind of experience and are kind of, you know, gaining the benefit of today. Some good, some bad, but... A hundred years ago shaped our existence now in drinking. Yeah. I do think that that's where a lot of our problems come from, too. Oh, yeah. Binge drinking probably started (laughs) right around Oh, there's still... There's still those prohibition, like, societies and stuff like that. There's still a ton of those around. And it's still something that's being... You know when you have, like, all that bullshit legislature that's, like, put, like, by just single people in, like, state senates or, Mm -hmm. like, the smaller senators? It's all that bullshit that you don't hear about when it's really insane. You hear about it, it's like... You know the fucking senator from Delaware put forth this or something like that? There's still, like, people that are like, um, does anybody want to talk about prohibition? <laughs> the, the senator from fucking North Dakota had has a bill on the floor. They're like, no, fuck no, boo. <laughs> he just pulls the paper off the table. Fine, I'll ask again in a few months. This is just a shoe that flies by the speaker's mm-hmm. head. <laughs> It's like when you're it's like in a movie with a bar and you see the glass break behind him. He's like, never mind. Yeah. Never mind. In the South Dakota legislature, just a beer bottle that goes flying through the air. All right, man. Well, you got anything else to add? No, beer day can be any day, but any day is specifically Fridays. That's right. All right, guys. Well, as you're listening to this after New Year's, hopefully no one is still nursing a hangover. On to a fucking fantastic 2024. We're going to be with you here every week. Here to entertain you. Rate, review, subscribe. Let us know what you want to hear from us in 2024. We are men of the people. And we want to keep this uh, train rolling. Absolutely. Later, guys. Peace. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for joining us for another episode. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe and like button. Follow us. If you didn't like what you heard, still hit that anyway, because we'll probably cover something in the future that you do like. Um, please follow us on our social media. Adam, hit him with it. Uh, our Instagram is historically high pod, historically high pod, and we are on Twitter at historically high. That's historically hi. All right. And if you guys want to send in any feedback, suggestions, hit us up on those two, or you can even do it on Gmail. It's historically high podcast at gmail.com. Uh, thanks again. Peace.